Thank you for checking out the messages of New Grace. We are a group of believers in Roanoke, Virginia, who are dedicated to loving God, loving others, and serving others. We hope that today's message is a blessing to you and your family. Hey, New Grace family. Just wanted to come to you this week and deliver the message that God has laid on my heart. We had a wonderful time worshiping God this morning. We were able to hear from uh, Nathan Waldock, missionary to Cambodia. He, of course, told us about his mission and the work he's doing over there. He also brought the word of God to us, and we had a great time worshiping God this morning. But right now, we're going to go ahead and finish up the series we started a couple months ago, looking at the life of Elijah and Elisha. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter number 5. So go ahead and get your Bibles there. Uh, we're going to read a lot of scripture, kind of walk through it a little bit, and then we have some, uh, some truth in the Word of God to look at. But I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into the message uh, right now. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you so much for the opportunity we have as your children to come before you, to worship you through song and praise and prayer, but also, Lord, through the Word of God. And Lord, as we open up your word and we look at this story in the life of Elisha, God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray even now that, Lord, through uh, this medium of technology, Lord, those people who are listening, those people who are watching, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will begin to, to move in their hearts and move in their lives. And, Lord, show them truth they need to see through your word. Lord, I pray most of all for those who are watching or listening who, Lord, need to be saved, who, Lord, have, have never accepted you as their Savior. Lord, maybe they've been trusting trusting in their good works and their religion. Maybe they've been trusting in their talent and their strength. Lord, maybe they've never even looked for you or thought of you. But God, I pray that you would begin to work in their heart right now, that the Holy Spirit would begin to draw them to you, show them their need of salvation, and Lord, have them accept you as their Savior before it's forever and eternally too late. God, I pray that you would fill me with your Spirit. Speak through me. Help me, Lord, to say what needs to be said, what should be said. And Lord, help me not to say what I should not say. But Lord, help everything that's said and done bring you honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are uh, times in our lives where we make decisions that are, are seemingly small decisions, but they impact our life in a great way. You know, we all make decisions every day. And honestly, most of them are fairly unimportant, whether we're going to go to Starbucks for coffee or Dunkin' Donuts for coffee. And of course, the answer is always Dunkin' Donuts. But we make those decisions. They don't really impact us throughout the day. They don't really impact a lot of eternity. But there are some decisions we make that we may make them flippantly. We may make them quickly. We may make them without even thinking, but they impact our lives. At the beginning of my junior year in high school, I made a small decision that changed the course of my life. I remember it very clearly. It was the first day of one-act play practice, and I got to the auditorium after school uh, a little early, and I was sitting on the stage waiting for everyone to get there. My friends started coming in, and we were talking and chatting about what the play we were going to do that year and who would get what role and those things. And then all of a sudden, the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen came in and sat down right next to me. 
Now, I'd known her throughout the, the year. I, I met her the year before playing soccer, and I knew who she was, and she knew who I was, and I was really probably the only familiar face in there for her. So she, she came up and started talking to me, and she had just turned 16, and her parents had bought her a car, and so she's, she's telling me about her car and showing me her key and her keychain, and it's kind of a neat little keychain, and her parents had it engraved for her, and we're just talking, and I made a decision right then and there that I wanted to date her, that I was going to pursue her. Now, through our conversation, she revealed to me that she had a boyfriend, but I didn't care. The decision had been made. I was going to pursue her. Now, it, it took me a while to get rid of that guy. We, we became very close friends right away and we talked all the time and we hung out all the time. And we, you know, even though we weren't officially dating, uh, I made it a habit to stop by her locker in between class and walk her to class before I went to mine. And we, we would talk on the phone and she had a boyfriend, but she would be on the phone with him. And when I called, she would get off the phone with him so she could talk to me. So I, I knew I, I'd made the right choice. And I knew I had this thing in the bag, but it took me a while. I finally got her to get rid of this bozo and she fell in love with me. Now, it was a small decision I made that day and I made it very quickly. I didn't put any thought into it. I just said, I, I want to date her. I want to get to know her. I want to I have a relationship with her. But that decision changed my life. Through that relationship, I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Because of that relationship, I've been married to the most wonderful woman for the last 22 years. I have three incredible children and a wonderful, happy, fulfilled life in my marriage. Because as a, a 16, 17-year-old boy, I made a decision just to see what would happen. And none of that would have happened. None of my, my life would not be what it is today had I not made the decision to try and date a beautiful girl that had a boyfriend. So that's, that's the lesson for today, guys. Even if the girl you like uh, or you want is taken, just keep being persistent, never give up. There's always hope. And if there's not hope, there's always places to hide a body. Now, actually, the point of the story we're gonna look at today is that a small decision made only with a, a glimmer of hope, can have massive implications on our lives. The story we're going to look at today, uh, as we finish up this series, shows us that truth, that small decisions with small faith have big implications on our lives. You know, the biggest blessings of your life will come from small acts of obedience to God. You know, it isn't, it isn't the dreams that you dream for your life that matter. It's the decisions that you make that matter to your life. And the story we're going to look at today, it's, it's one of my favorite stories in the stories of Elijah and Elisha. And if you've, if you've grown up in church, this, this story will be familiar to you. It deals with a, a very powerful man 
in the army of Syria. Now, last week, of course, the story we saw uh, about spiritual vision dealt with uh, the Syrian army. And of course, when they were captured by Elisha, not knowing what was happening because they were spirits, they were blinded. They have their sight restored and they see that they're surrounded by the king and surrounded by the, Isra the Israel army. Uh, they're very scared and not sure what's going to happen. And Elijah shows them grace. He feeds them, gives them some drink, sends them on their way. And the Bible says they never again invaded Israel. So why are we talking about the Syrian army today? Well, mainly because the story we're going to look at today happened before the story we looked at last week. <clears throat> we're going back a little in the story of Elisha because I wanted to end our series with this story. So get your Bibles open to 2 Kings chapter number 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. Now, there's, there's a lot in this verse. First of all, we, we see this man, Naaman. He was a great man. Now, I remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at the story of the woman who set up a little uh, house for Elisha. And he came by there, and he ended up resurrecting her son. She was a great woman. That word was gadol. It meant powerful, and had, it meant powerful in wealth and prestige and authority. It means that Naaman was a very powerful man. He had a lot of money. He had a lot of influence. He had a lot going on for him. He was probably like the prime minister in the Syrian government. He was a mighty general who had been used uh, by the Syrian army to have incredible victories. He was, he was feared. He was respected. He was a great man. But he was a leper. That's a big butt right there. Doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how great you are, doesn't matter how powerful you are, doesn't matter how wealthy you are, doesn't matter how feared you are, when you have leprosy, that's all that matters. Leprosy was the most feared disease at the time. It would begin with a little white spot on your hand, and it would itch for a little bit, and then it would become numb, and then it would spread throughout your body with more and more white spots popping up before it spread throughout your entire body. And it was, it was a, a nerve disease, so it attacked your nerve ending. So you wouldn't be able to feel, you would become numb to things. And then all of a sudden, your, your fingers and your toes and your extremities would begin to rot and, and sometimes fall off. Your ears would, would fall off. It was deforming physically. Your nose could fall off, your lips, and then it would spread to your arms and your legs. And it was, it was a horrible disease. It was a disfiguring disease. It was a long, slow, agonizing death that there was no cure for. Now, there's a, there's a cure and there's a treatment now. But back in Naaman's day, there was no hope. You got leprosy. It was a long, agonizing death sentence. Look at verse number two. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive uh, out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that was in Syria, 
for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid, and that is in the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, and six thousand pieces of gold, and ten changes of raiment. Now, that, that little phrase there that he, that he brought with him, look at it again. Uh, ten talents of silver... 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment. Now, that was an incredible amount of money. In today's market, that is $4,384,000 worth of gold and silver. That's a lot of money. Then he sends 10 changes of clothes. That seems a little little odd. Why, why would you give someone $4.3 million and then 10 outfits? It doesn't make a lot of sense. But in, the, in these days, these, these weren't just like work clothes. These were like party garments. These were royal garments. And they were very, very expensive because they were handmade. They took forever to make. So they were very well made, very highly sought after, and very expensive. 99% of the people in the area didn't even have one of these sets of garments. And here the king of Syria is sending 10 of them to the king of Israel along with $4.3 million to purchase a cure for his favorite general, Naaman. Look at verse number six. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter has come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And when it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man thus sent unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. Now, the king is not happy to get this money in these clothes because it comes with a, a pretty big amendment. You can keep all of this if you heal Naaman. And he can't heal Naaman. He has no power to do that. He has no authority to do that. So he thinks the king of Syria is just trying to find a way to make war with me. Look at verse number eight. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel has rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Elisha, now he's, he's far away from the king, but he, he heard about what happened. Gossip in church spreads faster than gossip anywhere else. So he hears what happens and he sends the king a letter saying, hey, why'd you tear your clothes? Send them my way. I'll deal with them. Now, Elisha, he saw a bigger purpose in Naaman's leprosy. He knew that God had given it to him so that Naaman could come to know God. Look at verse number nine. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the people of Israel as this is happening. Here's Naaman, a Syrian general, a feared man because of his military expertise and his, his and we, we learn later on in scripture and we see in history, he was a fierce warrior. He, he didn't take prisoners. He didn't spare people. 
He, he murdered and killed and burned and pillaged and plundered everywhere he went. And here this guy is with an, an entourage of soldiers and chariots and warriors marching through Israel to go see Elisha. His, his caravan comes to Elisha's house and they, they stand out there waiting. He doesn't even go knock on the door because he knows I'm a big deal. People know who I am. Elisha's going to know I'm here because I'm not coming by myself at night. I'm, I'm coming with a huge caravan of people making a lot of noise, like a lot of racket. He's going to know I'm here. So he shows up at Elisha's house. And what does Elisha do? He sends out his servant. He doesn't even get up to talk to Naaman. He sends a servant. to Look at verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Now, Elijah's house wasn't that big. Uh, I'm sure that Naaman saw him in there, saw him talk to a servant, and the servant come out, and Elisha just go about doing whatever he was, he was doing. Doesn't even get up to greet him. Doesn't even come to the door and say, Hey, Naaman, how you doing? He's got you covered. Just listen to what he does, what he says. He just ignores him. He sends out a servant. It would be like if, if Vladimir Putin showed up at my door and he brought tanks and helicopters and soldiers and just stood outside my door and, and I sent Connor out there. And Connor runs up to him and says, hey, Mr. Putin, you know what? Sorry, my dad, he's busy. He's watching TV. He can't really be bothered right now. It's a close game. So you understand, right? But hey, he said, if you just go down the road a couple miles, there's a creek. Just jump in there seven times, skinny dip in there seven times, and all your problems will be over. Have a great day, man. Take it easy. It's not the best thing to do to a powerful general with an army outside your door. But Elisha doesn't care. I love that about him. He's not impressed or moved by power, prestige. He's just like, hey, go tell him what to do, and I got stuff to do. Look at verse number 11. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Naaman is mad, not just because Elisha ignored him, but because he was expecting Elisha to do something spectacular. You know, he'd heard the stories about Elijah who called down fire from heaven to, to take away, the, to devour the, the sacrifice and the altar and the water. And he was expecting some incredible show of God's power and some magical thing. But he doesn't even come out. He doesn't even come out to see what's going on. Look at verse number 12. Are not Abba and Farbar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Now the rivers he mentioned, they are huge rivers in Syria. The Jordan River in comparison is a small, muddy creek. Then the Bible says Naaman left in a rage. The word rage there is the Hebrew word hemah. It means heat, venom, or poison. It's the same Hebrew word that's translated wrath other places in the Bible, specifically talking about the wrath of God coming down. Things are getting dangerous. He feels he's wasted his time, and Elisha just wants to humiliate him. 
So he leaves wanting revenge. Look at verse 13. And a servant came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. His servants come to him and say, Look, look, I understand you're upset. I know you're disappointed. You're kind of mad. But if he'd have told you to go climb a mountain and snip off the toenails of a dragon, you'd have done it. You'd have done some great heroic feat. All he said is go jump in the river seven times. What, what do you have to lose? Just give it a try. Look at verse 14. Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like him unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So Naaman reluctantly, he's mad, he's angry, but he's got enough kind of faith about him and enough sense about him that when someone says, hey, just try it, he goes, you know what, what, what? it's not going to work, but why not? You know, he may have even been going down there to prove Elisha, Elisha wrong. To say, look, he just wants to humiliate me. I'm going to go jump in this muddy creek seven times. Nothing's going to happen. Then we can bring the wrath, the, the wrath of the Syrian army down to them. And we can attack and actually do something to make me feel good. So he goes down. He makes a decision to go do what, he, what Elisha said. He dips in the river seven times. The seventh time he comes up, he's healed. The Bible says his skin was as smooth as a baby. Brand new skin. Look at verse number 15. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. So after he's healed, he goes back to Elisha and he speaks to Elisha for the first time. When he sees the man of God, when he sees Elisha, the man who had healed him, who had told him, go to the Jordan, dip seven times, you'll be healed. He had gone down. He had obeyed the man of God. He'd been healed. His life had been spared. He doesn't one time say, thank you for saving my life. He doesn't one time mention leprosy. All he says is, now I know that there's one true God and his name is Jehovah. Naaman didn't come to Elisha looking for God. He came to Elisha looking for a cure. But through his leprosy, he found God. God used his search for a cure to lead him to something better than healing from a horrible disease. He led him to God. What if God in your pain has something better for you than a cure for your pain? What if he had something so incredible for you, something so valuable that you would forget all about the pain that you were facing in the first place? All of us have problems that we would rather keep covered. We want everyone to think we have it all together. We, we put on a facade of, of success and, and happiness and, and joy and fulfillment. But in every single one of us, there is a brokenness behind the facade. There's a, a secret sin that we can't conquer. 
There's a relationship problem that we can't resolve. There's, there's brokenness. There's a past that we're ashamed of. There's fear that we try to hide. Or maybe we're, we're facing some obstacle so big that we feel we can't overcome it. A health problem. Maybe it's a loss of a job, a loss of a loved one. God has a purpose in all of it. And his purpose could be to get you to see him. To draw you so close to him that you forget about your problems. God's greatest reward is himself. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure hidden in the field, so valuable and so precious that we're willing to sell everything we have and get rid of everything we have just to buy that field, just to have that treasure. Now, I'm not trying to answer the question today of why God allows us to suffer. You know, suffering has different purposes for different people. Sometimes the, it is sin that is causing our suffering. That's for the believers. There's sometimes there's sin in our life that God allows suffering in our life to show us our need of him, to bring us to a place of brokenness and repentance. So we'll forget about that sin. We'll confess that sin. We'll forsake that sin and we'll come back to him. But not all suffering is connected to sin. So don't, don't judge someone. You got to be very careful if someone's suffering to judge them and say, well, they must have some sin in their life that God's trying to deal with. Yes, it could be that. It could be some other purpose. Their suffering could be to help bring somebody else to God. Their suffering could be for some other purpose. So, so don't automatically judge people because they're suffering. I just want us to consider whether or not God has a greater purpose in our pain than we're seeing. The point of this story isn't to show that everyone who jumps in the Jordan River finds healing. The point of this story is to show how hurting people come to God, or better yet, how God finds hurting people. Look again at verse number 15. Look at the last part of verse 15. <clears throat> says, Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. Verse 16. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman, he's, he's thrilled that he's healed. He's ecstatic that, that God has healed him, that he's got a relationship with God. So he comes to Elisha and says, Now I know that there's a God in Israel, and God used you to show that to me. So please take this gift as a token of my appreciation. Uh, but Elisha turns him down. Here's a guy who just offered the king $4.3 million for a cure, and now he comes to Elisha and says, hey, I've got the cure. I want to thank you. Take a gift. It probably wasn't $4.3 million, but it was probably a lot of money, and Elisha turns it down. He is not a good Baptist preacher. He would, any Baptist preacher worth his salt would have accepted that gift in a heartbeat. Some rich dude offers you money, you take it. But Elisha, 
he knew that if he had accepted that gift, then it would have confused everyone. People would have thought that Naaman had purchased his healing. And Elisha wanted everyone to know that God's grace, that God's healing, that God's salvation is a free gift to everyone who accepts it. So Naaman's story, it shows us how and why we need to come to God. So here's, here's the first point we'll look at this morning. Number one, why he came to God. Think about Naaman for a minute. He, he begins this story as the ultimate insider. He's a powerful general. He's the prime minister. He's wealthy. He's respected. He's popular. Everyone knew him and they either loved him or they feared him. But he suddenly becomes the ultimate outsider when he gets leprosy. You contact, contracted leprosy in this time, you were cast out of society. You had to live outside of the city, separated from your family, separated from your friends, separated from everyone that cared about you. And if anyone got too close to you, you had to warn them that you were, had, had a disease so they could avoid you. Leprosy was not just a death sentence. It was a sentence of banishment and loneliness. But without that disease, Naaman never would have found God. What is, it that, what is in your life that seems like a death sentence to you? But it's there to get you to come to God. Maybe it's a need in your marriage. Maybe it's a problem with one of your children. Maybe it's a, a sin that you can't overcome or some guilt from your past or, or fear that paralyzes you. What spot do you have? that God put there for you to see him, for you to see your need for him. See, Naaman's spot, it took him from the inside and put him on the outside. And every one of us want to be on the inside. It's in our nature. It comes from the, the fact that at the Garden of Eden, we all began creation as insiders with God and sweet fellowship with God, walking with him at the cold of the day. But because of the sin of man, we were all cast out. We were cast out of the presence of God. Every one of us has a spot on our soul, and that spot is sin. Because of our sin, we begin our lives as outsiders, outside of God's family, his presence, and his grace. And sin, like leprosy, causes death. The wages of sin is death. It is appointed that a man wants to die, and then the judgment. There is none righteous, no, not one. We have all chosen our own way and become unprofitable. Because of the spot of sin, we are outsiders. As unbelievers, you are outside the family of God. But sin, unconfessed, unrepentant sin in the life of the believer puts you outside of his presence. As a child of God, my salvation is secure. My relationship with God will never change. I will always be a child of God. But my fellowship with God can change. Sin means God won't hear me. Sin in my life means that God resists me. 
It means that I am outside the presence of God. It puts me outside of the realm of blessing. As believers, we need to be careful about the sin in our life. That little spot that shows up that, yeah, it will not take away your salvation. It will not take away your place in the family of God. But it'll kill your, your fellowship with God. It'll kill your, your relationship with Him and your, the blessing you receive from Him. And it will cause death in every area of your life if you don't deal with that spot. Your spot in your life shows you your need for God. That's why Naaman came to God. He saw his need for Him. Do you see your need for God? So we not only see why he came to God. Number two, let's see how he came to God. We see three things that Naaman did to come to God in his time of need that we need to do when we come to God, either for salvation or for repentance and forgiveness. We got to come to God the same way. The first way he came was he came through humility. Throughout this story, this great man he keeps trying to get things done through kings and through leaders and through powerful people, but he keeps having to deal with slaves. A Hebrew servant girl, who's the lowest you could be at this time, tells him where he needs to go to be healed. So he goes to the king of Syria, who goes to the king of Israel, and eventually he's pushed away to Elijah, and he gets to Elijah's house, the prophet of the man of God. And he doesn't even get to see him. A servant comes out and tells them what to do. He gets so angry, he's furious, he's leaving, that his servants come to him and say, why don't you just, why don't you just give it a try? Instead of doing some heroic feat like he thought he would do or having some magical ceremony happen, he's, he's told, just go jump in the muddy Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. His money didn't help him. His power didn't help him. His prestige didn't help him. God does not save through our strength. Your money, your talent, your position is worthless to God. God saves, God delivers by grace and through faith. Salvation isn't found in ingenuity. It's not found in your spirit or your achievements. Salvation is found in a man that was so despised that when he showed up on earth, we crucified him. The cross destroys our pride. God's verdict on our life was death. The cross shows us that we were powerless to save ourselves. There is nothing that we could do to earn it or to contribute to it. All we contribute to our salvation is sin. God did the rest. What keeps us from coming to God for salvation, what keeps us from coming to God for forgiveness is pride. We have to admit we are powerless and we need him. Do you have the humility that you need to come to God? To see your need of him. He came through humility. Second way he came was he came through a suffering servant. Look again at verse number two. 
And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away a captive out of the land of Israel, a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's, life, Naaman's wife. Most Bible theologians believe that this girl, when she was taken from home, was between 10 and 14 years old. She's a young girl, and she's taken away captive by an invading army. She was a victim of human trafficking. Her family had probably been killed right in front of her. And she's taken somewhere else. And she's not suffering because of her sin. She's suffering because of someone else's sin, but her suffering has a different purpose. Bible says that she was Naaman's wife's servant. That tells us that Naaman was the one who was leading the invasion that destroyed her village and killed her family and stole her away from her homeland. But before, but she forgives Naaman. She learns of his death sentence and she doesn't rejoice. She doesn't like serves him right. It's what he gets for, for murdering my family and taking me away from home. This is exactly what he deserves. She doesn't rejoice. She offers help. Look again at verse 3. And she said unto her mistress, Naaman's wife, Would God that my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. This little girl had the faith to say, I'll let God be God and judge who needs to be judged, and I'll just forgive. She was suffering because of Naaman, but her suffering led to his salvation. Your salvation comes through the suffering servant. She gives us a clear picture of Jesus. Jesus suffered just like her. He suffered because of other people's sins. But unlike her, he took the suffering voluntarily. He willingly gave up his life as a ransom for many. Jesus suffered so that when we are suffering, we can come to him for salvation and we can come to him for healing. He came through humility. He came through a suffering servant. And thirdly, he came through simple obedience. All Naaman had to do to be healed was jump in the Jordan River seven times. All he had to do was obey. That's it, nothing else. When we come to Jesus, whether for salvation or for healing or for forgiveness, all we have to do is put our faith and our trust in him. You know, too many believers think that you come to Jesus for salvation uh, for, through, by grace through faith and that's the only way we come to him for salvation but everything else is complicated we have to if we want to come to God after that we got to pray the right way or serve the right way or read the right things or give the right amount and we got to do everything just right to get him to help us when we're hurting or forgive us when we're wrong but that's not how we come to God in any way at all Paul said in Colossians 2 6 as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk ye in him how do we receive God? By grace, through faith. How do we walk with God? By grace, through faith. How do we come to God when we need forgiveness? By grace, through faith, believing 
that he forgives those who come to him. For salvation, for help, we simply have to put our trust in him and that he will save us. We have to trust that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So what does that mean for the sinner? For those of you who, who aren't saved, who don't know Christ as your Savior, you simply have to obey Christ and come to him for salvation. What about us believers who we are saved, but we, we, have, we still have that spot? We have a sin that we need to confess and forsake. We have a, a, a burden that we're carrying around. We have a, an issue that we're struggling with. We have to understand that God is calling us to a simple act of obedience as well. Maybe it's a simple act of confessing your faults and asking forgiveness where he says in 1 John, if we confess our, our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. Maybe God's just saying, hey, all I need you to do is come to me humbly, confess your sins and seek forgiveness and then turn from it. Maybe God's trying to get you to do something else. Maybe God has given you a spot to show you your need to obey and stop doing something he's commanded you not to do. Maybe there's some sin you got to get rid of. Maybe he gave you the spot to show you your need to start doing something that he wants you to do. Maybe he wants you to start tithing or walking with him or serving with him or joining the church or following the believer's baptism. Whatever it is, God's given you a spot because he wants you to see your need for him and simply obey. Whatever God is calling you to do today to get to him, we have to obey. You know, your pain has a purpose. I can't tell you every purpose to it, but I can tell you that God wants you to come to him because of it. See your need for God and then come to God humbly through Christ and through obedience. Maybe your spot again is showing you your need of salvation. If you're watching or listening this morning and you've never accepted Christ as your savior, that's your greatest need. You may have all kinds of problems in your life. You may have, have money problems and health problems and, and relationship problems, but your biggest problem is the fact that you need to accept Christ as your Savior. See your need for Him. Bible says that we are all sinners, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For there's none righteous, none at one. Our greatest need is the need for God to cleanse our sin, but we can't do it ourselves. We have to understand that the only way for us to be saved was for a perfect, sinless sacrifice to die in our place. And Jesus did that. The Bible says, but God commendeth or God showed his love to us. That while we were still sinners, not while we were good or trying hard, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did for you what you could never do. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sins was buried and rose three days later to redeem me to God the Father. And all we have to do is accept His gift of salvation. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth and believe in thine heart that God hath raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. If you're watching this morning, if you're listening right now, and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, and you want to do it now, I'm going to say a prayer. There's no power in the prayer. The prayer is just simply a way for you to acknowledge that you are a sinner, that sinners go to hell, that Jesus paid the price for your salvation and you accept his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross only 
as payment for your sin. I'm going to pray. You just repeat this prayer after me. You can pray it out loud. You pray it in your heart. But let's accept Christ this morning. Pray this. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Lord, I know that because of my sin, I have the spot of death on my life. There's no cure. Lord, I can't fix it. Lord, without your help, without your salvation, I'm going to go to hell. And Lord, I don't want to go to hell. So God, I accept your gift of dying on the cross as payment for my sin. Lord, I believe that you took my sin upon yourself. You died in your place and rose again three days later to redeem me to God. Lord, I believe that and I accept that as payment for my salvation. Thank you, Father, for dying for me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, we, we want to rejoice with you. We're going to put some information on the screen. Just want you to reach out to us. Maybe give us a phone call. You can text us. You can email us. Just reach out so we can rejoice with you. We want to help you in your next step with God. Maybe you need to come to, the, come to our church and allow us to help disciple you and train you and, and teach you about how wonderful your new Heavenly Father is. Maybe there's another church we can get you in contact with that can help you in your relationship with God. But just reach out to us. We want to rejoice with you. We want to thank God for what's been done in your life. Thank you so much for joining with us this morning. God's got a purpose for everything you're going through. And his main purpose is to let you see your need for him. Don't waste it. Don't waste the pain. Thank you so much for joining with us. We love you. We'll see you next week.